Welcome to another edition of Exploring Mental Illness, everything that you wanted to know but were too afraid to ask. This is Carrie Ballou, Community Relations Coordinator at Fuller Hospital in Atterboro, Mass. And with me today, I have Austin Ricketts. Austin is our engineer slash co-host for the day. Uh, Derek Mohan is on assignment. Welcome, Austin. Hello. How's it going? I'm usually on the other side. I'm not usually on this side, you know, in front of the mic. So it's good to be here. Good to have you here today. With us today, we have Diana Holmes, licensed social worker. Diana, welcome. Thank you. Great to have you here today. Thank you for inviting me. And also just thank you for keeping the topic open. It's really important that we're constantly talking about this. So I appreciate it. Absolutely. That was one of our founding reasons for starting the podcast was because we understand working with folks who have mental health issues and working with families of individuals with mental health issues, how important it is to kind of break some stigma and to make sure people have the information and resources out there that they need to cope. And speaking of coping skills, I know today we were going to talk a little bit about holistic approaches to mental health, specifically mindfulness question. Have you ever heard of or tried any holistic approaches to maintaining your mental health? Actually, this is like a good first podcast for me because I have a semi-regular mindfulness practice myself. So a great time for me to be on and to talk about this. That's awesome. Would you mind sharing? Sure. Um, I meditate semi-regularly a few times a week for about 15 to 20 minutes. I would say that mindfulness over the years has been getting a lot of um, scientific support for just helping people with their emotional well-being. So can I ask sure. a little bit more? Sure. What is your exercise include? Mindfulness, a lot of people think that it's about uh, trying to empty your mind of thoughts or try to make emotions go away or thoughts go away. But what it really is it's about trying to observe whatever's happening. So you can even have like a really busy mind, but uh, you're just taking a step kind of out of yourself and just watching what's going on. So uh, my practice usually just includes a few minutes of kind of getting settled down, kind of bringing myself to the present moment in the sense of uh, being aware of what I'm listening to or not listening to, uh, being aware of how my body feels as I'm sitting on a chair or on the floor or wherever I am. And then from there, I usually go into um, just focusing on a single point. And that, it helps you focus so that you don't kind of go off and get distracted on this thought or that thought. So for me, my central focus is usually the breath. And I think that's pretty common. Um, so it's just, you're just focusing on, you know, breathing in and breathing out. And um, whenever your mind kind of wanders and you're not really paying attention to what's happening, you just come back once you realize that. So that's that's kind of the basic practice. That was a fantastic description. I, I honestly was expecting something like, oh, I focus on my M&M that I'm eating or I'm in the shower and I'm just mindful of the, the water hitting my back, you know, like something, maybe a few brief moments and then call it a day. But that was... That was a great description. What, what, what do you say, Diana? I agree. I think it was great. Um, I can give a little bit of a history right now and just say that mindfulness has been around for a long time, um, but it came to the United States from John Kabat-Zinn in the late 60s. And he's a really good uh, definition that I can share right now, but I think Austin pretty much hit every point. So mindfulness is a psychological process of bringing one's attention 
to the internal and external experience occurring in the present moment, which can be developed through practice of meditation and other training. And he describes mindfulness as a means of paying attention in a particular way, on purpose, in the present moment, and non-judgmentally. So all of that together, it may sound simple, but it is very complex. And the more we do practice it, the easier it does become. So it's great that you have a practice that you do often. I can't even say that I do. So <laughs> That's great. You know what? And practice makes perfect, right? Um, I recently started taking a boxing class. And I'm not one to be drawn to exercise, never have been but got to a point where I realized it was pretty imperative. And so I just started this this boxing class, and it's much more intense than I expected. And the folks in the class are probably slightly more in shape than I am. And what was amazing is it's easy, I think, to fault yourself for not being able to do all the moves or to be able to perform at the same capacity as folks that have been doing it for weeks, months, or years. But as you have to remind yourself, your body, your muscles, the ability to stretch and bend in certain ways takes time and practice, right? So it sounds like the same thing for our minds as well. Definitely. Typically, I'll do like a 15 or 20 minute meditation. For me now, it just goes by really fast. But I know when I first started, it was every minute was very, very slow. (laughs) Absolutely. I understand that. I recently was covering a class at Fuller. So one of my side gigs is I do uh, per diem activities therapy at Fuller Hospital here in Attleboro, where I work in community relations. So on the weekends, sometimes I need folks to help with um, running our inpatient groups. And so part of inpatient care as well as partial care, partial hospitalization, is having the combination of medication management and then structured groups that talk about different coping skills and have different therapeutic exercises and medication management and so forth. So for the first time, I had the chance to utilize meditation um, in one of my groups. And it was out of the blue, you know, being per diem, I kind of show up and they say, okay, this is, this is what was scheduled for the group. And they gave me a general topic and it had to do with relaxation. And the first thing I thought of, and I'm sitting there, I'm like, I'm not sure what I should do. And then I realized I have a phone. I have access to tons of recordings and music, and I did a great search on different meditations, found one I liked, performed it with our inpatient group, our adults, and it was a hit. We sat in our activities room, we had the lights off, we listened to the entire piece, we practiced, and it was one of the, I would say, most enriching and impactful. And in fact, I had a resident or a um, patient who is uh, probably in her 50s, had never performed meditation before and was absolutely astonished. And to see that impact, especially at an inpatient level of care when folks are at their most sensitive and they're in crisis, was really, really rewarding. Um, I would say that that's great that the group was successful, but sometimes I'd like to tell individuals, sometimes the first time you do something, it doesn't feel right. It may be uncomfortable to sit with yourself, to, to try to kind of quiet your mind a little bit or to focus on what you're thinking about. And that's okay. So sometimes when you first try mindfulness, it doesn't feel right away like peaceful or calming, but that doesn't mean you're not doing it right or that it's not for you. So I would say always just kind of circle back and see if there is some way that you can tap into trying to 
to be in the present moment. We're kind of throwing around words, you know, both mindfulness and meditation. So I would I would usually describe meditation as the actual practice of, you know, sitting down and uh, bringing yourself to the present moment and focusing on a particular object. And mindfulness, I would say, is just the general uh, being aware of what's happening, what your body's doing, what your thoughts are. Would you agree, Diana? I think that that's pretty accurate. If somebody were to say one or the other, I wouldn't correct them because whatever's working for them or how they are visualizing what they're doing is part of it. So I don't get caught up in the labels as much as I do the practice or what's actually working, what coping style is working for them. So why do you think it's important to bring mindfulness to the work that you do? So mindfulness is really a way to slow down and to try to figure out exactly how the mind is working. So what is working for individuals and what is not? There's two styles that often come to my attention that I find a lot of people experience and that I can speak to. One of them is, is that I hear people wanting to push away their emotions. So sometimes uh, when an intense emotion comes on, somebody's trying to, they tell me, I'm here because I really want to control my emotions. I'm here because I want to push it away. This is too aggressive of an approach to take with your emotions. Our emotions need to be taken with care and we need to respect them. If you try to aggressively attack your emotions and say, I need to control you, you are not going to do that. Your emotions are like the ocean. So imagine trying to set up a dam for the ocean. There will just be a tsunami of emotions that will come. So you have to think of your emotions as the waves that come in and out. Just because you have an intense emotion does not mean you have to respond to it or have to act on it or, or be impulsive. It just means that it's occurring. So if we can slow ourselves down to recognize when these intense emotions come along, there's a way to make sure that we're not acting in a way that could then cause other issues later on. So that's one of the things that I often see. And then the other area that often comes up is repetitive thoughts. So this is when individuals discuss almost like a tape recorder. So it's a rewind and play. And it's funny that I use that example because I feel like younger folks don't even know what a tape a tape, <laughs> a tape player is. You but, would be accurate but, in that. But, but I think that the idea is, is that there's a thought and they cannot let it go. It's in a loop. It's playing constantly. And they're just building on that thought. So one of the examples that I like to give for that is imagine that you have a backyard that's fenced in and you have a dog, a greyhound dog, that's just going to run a track in the backyard. Eventually, there's going to be no grass around that fence because the dog is just going to continue to run. Our brains are very similar to that. When we grow a thought and continue to have the same thought and think the same thought, we're actually creating a track in our mind and we're growing that. And so one of the things that mindfulness does is tries to recognize that that's occurring and tries to intervene in a different way. Those are some examples of what I see and how so, mindfulness can be used. It's almost like forming a habit of like thoughts in your mind and yes. you're just kind of retracing it over and over again until it becomes kind of entrenched there. Yes. So in, in going back a little bit to what you were saying before, Austin, about kind of the difference between mindfulness and then the practice of, which would be through meditation, um, Diana, you brought up another great point, guided imagery, which is, again, another, they kind of all work, can work hand in hand. There's some guided imagery that's utilized in meditation um, as well, but being able to create a visual in your mind, almost like a safe spot, right? Like a Linus blanket. I'm going to create this image or this this scenario in my head that I can go to where I can recognize that my thoughts are that dog running around in the backyard. Have you found people who have had success with utilizing this on a 
on a regular basis to address their anxiety, depression, or other needs? I definitely have. And I think that it is practice, though. And I think oftentimes when there's um, maybe unhealthy coping, it's easy to revert to that when we're under pressure, under stress. We go to something that we think is going to work for us and oftentimes is not the right coping for us. So that's why mindfulness, it should be practiced not only when we're in a stressful situation, but just across the board. So trying to build it into your day. If you just try to use mindfulness when you're under a stressful situation for the first time, it's not going to work. It's something that you start to build on that. And then hopefully when you are in a stressful situation, you can remember how to kind of connect with that. So one of the the topics we talk about here and one of the words that come up a lot is coping. Obviously, we're looking at mindfulness and meditation as uh, coping skills, a form of what a lot of folks call holistic coping skills, right? I find personally that it's now more than I've ever noticed historically is that our society and our mental health agencies, establishments, hospitals are utilizing a combination of holistic approaches with the standard evidence-based medication management and counseling approach, right? So my question to you, Diana, would be, what are your thoughts or where have you seen people being able to manage, or should I say, what was the outcome of people trying to manage both the holistic approach along with the more standard approaches to managing their mental health? Well, I would say that I don't prescribe medication. I'm a licensed social worker. So what I usually try to do is focus on techniques that are going to work. So one of the ways to do that is definitely through mindfulness. Another technique I like is motivational interviewing, but that would be a whole nother, a whole nother show. But with mindfulness, I really think that this should start to be incorporated even with schools. Getting to know our emotions, getting to know how we are thinking or feeling about something and building compassion for ourselves can also help build empathy and compassion for others. So I really see a big missed opportunity with that. I, I think that this is an area where getting even children to learn about their emotions is really important. It would be helpful if they could identify when they're feeling certain ways and ways to cope and be able to express what's happening. You mentioned incorporating mindfulness throughout the day. Um, what are some ways that people could do that? Some of the ways we had mentioned even like through Amazon or different scripts that people have, they can even do it on their commute. They can have a mindfulness script that they use on a commute. It could be on the train or even in the car. Be careful. You don't want to be putting on one that's going to put you to sleep while you're driving. But there are certainly other ones. Um, but it also can be through the day in terms of when you're eating your meal. So it can be structured in whenever you're doing something that's routine would be important to do. Okay, so I'm trying to, to imagine a quick example or a quick exercise of mindfulness could be, could be my lunch, right? Maybe I'm going to sit there and I'm going to really focus on the taste of my food, the crunch, versus just trying to eat and type, which unfortunately nowadays a lot of folks they do. They go right through their lunchtime. They don't stop. They don't stop. They're afraid they're not being productive enough or they're trying to catch up. But that's a really great idea, sitting there just mindfully eating your lunch, even if it's just one item, right, and just trying to focus on that. Or even walking, you know, the steps, feeling, really feeling each step that you take instead of just walking from A to B. Really good idea. And I, I know that um, you'd mentioned, obviously, there's a lot of media platforms where you can access these for free. I know that there's a 
plethora of DVDs and CDs out there that focus on the subject. And I think for folks that maybe don't are hesitant to want to invest in anything, um, but like to have something on hand, you know, there's local libraries. I know they are an awesome resource for education and information, um, both audio as well as visual. You have some books in front of you. It looks like you have some uh, go-to guides and and references. Um, Tell us a little bit about some of the resources that you found to be helpful. One of the books that I really like is Pieces Every Step, and it's a book by Thich Nhat Hunt. And it's a quick read because each section is just a different mindfulness. So I've actually lent this book to a lot of individuals, and they always end up returning it, which is nice. But these can be found really anywhere, at the Unlikely Bookstore or the library, anywhere. Is that another book for... This is guided imagery. This is a guided imagery book. And I'm glad that you brought that up earlier, too, because sometimes when you're trying mindfulness out, you may not like a certain style. But again, you should try to see if there's other styles. It's really important to remain open because sometimes folks will try one thing and they say, no, that never works for me. Well, when we do that, that's a way to kind of cut off our way of coping, right? We're kind of cutting out a whole category that this is never going to work for me. But to try to remain open that if the guided imagery doesn't work, maybe a different type of mindfulness will work and just to try to try out different ones. So... Can you uh, talk a little bit more about that? Is it just um, imagining a a place or what is it? So the guided imagery can take you somewhere in your mind. So it could be the beach or anywhere that's relaxing or anything like that. One of the things that I was just thinking about when I said that word, that will never work for me. There's research out that shows that individuals that do have more depression and anxiety often speak in absolutes. So they say things like, my life will never be, or it's always that way. It's everybody always treats me that way. And when we speak in these absolutes, it is doing something to our brains. And they've kind of categorized people who have more depression and anxiety, and they've noticed that type of language happens more. So when we're using absolutes, just be mindful about, is it really always, or is there other examples that could maybe counter that and and ways that you can kind of have a little bit more of flexibility in your thinking? So you actually brought up a really good point. I feel like we're kind of jumping around a little bit here, jumping right into (laughs) the the mindfulness piece and what it is and different techniques. But for our listeners out there, who would benefit from mindfulness? And what are some of the areas of need that it addresses? Yes. So as I mentioned, students that are going to school, young children, I really do think that mindfulness can help everyone. Um, To what degree, it depends on how much an individual is willing to practice or if they feel like it's going to work for them. So really, I don't see any population that would not benefit from trying to track how they think about the world, how they engage with the world, ways that they are quick to interact with the world. It's just a way to kind of slow us down to try to figure out what is happening. How do I respond to certain things? With that being said, I have found it to be helpful with individuals that do have anxiety and depression. So we're talking about mindfulness and kind of slowing down. Just to offer some contrast, what does a person who's not mindful at all look like? Yeah, that's a good question. Well, I think sometimes folks may not even realize it, but it may be just in a routine. So their lives may look like rushed or they may not have moment to kind of sit and reflect. And a lot of times that is something that can happen when we're being mindful. Sometimes it feels uncomfortable because we have to sit with ourselves. And sometimes it's hard to do that because then we realize we have maybe racing thoughts or we're having negative thoughts about ourselves. It's not always comfortable to be mindful, but somebody that's not mindful, maybe um, it, it comes out in frustrations or different ways. And I would 
absolutely agree too about the piece about the the who it addresses and in what areas of need the depression and anxiety. Obviously, we talk a lot about chronic mental health here on our podcast, but we also talk a lot about preventative measures, right? Do you wait till it becomes a problem to address it? We don't really talk enough about what we can do to prevent ourselves from getting to to that point. And so you mentioned, for instance, um, integrating this with with children, right, and giving them these practices now. And so, again, from my perspective, working in an inpatient mental health setting, we use it as a tool consistently with our patients who have are with us for direct mental health issues and then folks who have what's called a dual diagnosis, which is where you have a primary psychiatric diagnosis, but you have a co-occurring substance use and abuse disorder. So I'm used to using it and our team is used to using it as another tool to help to bring them down, to address the, the crisis, to address it when they're at their most vulnerable. In terms of the preventative piece of it, what are some settings besides a school, that was a great point, that you think that this would really um, be helpful in preventing? Well, I'm happy you brought that up. I think that you know this could even be used, as we're sitting here talking, for professionals to be kind of mindful about when we're busy, especially when you're in working in a unit that's very busy and things like that. It's important that nurses, we need to make sure that we're always staying focused. You hear about them uh, being overworked and things of that nature. This is a way to kind of take a break and to really try to um, assess a situation. It's easier to care for somebody when you're feeling like you're getting what you need, which is oftentimes a break or a mental health check, like to be in check with what's happening. So Sounds like you have to be very intuitive. Yes. That into itself could be a whole other podcast, and it takes a lot of practice for people to recognize, I think, when they've reached that point. So we talked about resources. We talked about access and incorporation. And we talked about different settings, like you said. Um, I mean, we talked schools, self-care for professionals in the field um, is super important. Usually meditation and mindfulness, you think of like... um I know it has roots in Eastern religion, but you don't have to be religious or subscribe necessarily to any particular religion in order to incorporate this, right? Or mm-hmm. I completely agree with that, yeah. Okay. So it is funny as we were talking about, um, you know, different techniques and places and incorporating mindfulness and, and, and meditation and holistic techniques into our day. It does remind me of conversations that I've heard over the years about incorporating things like prayer. Prayer is across um, religions and backgrounds. is essentially another form of mindfulness or could be considered another form of mindfulness. But it just reminded me of the two. Is there any research out there? And I'm just curious because I see, I'm thinking and hearing what you're saying about how it benefits folks and using it as a positive coping skill. And where we see a lot of negative coping skills, Diana, and you know this probably already, is with substance use and abuse. What is your viewpoint of maybe being able to address substance use and abuse using mindfulness? Yeah, so mindfulness, it's interesting because even when we think about uh, like the 12-step program, when you when you really even look at that program, a lot of the steps have to do with taking a break, being mindful, being in the moment, and trying to figure out kind of next steps. And so I think that it could be used, but when I think of um, individuals that are struggling with substance abuse, I often think of for clinicians to be using motivational interviewing. So how can we get them through the process of wanting to change themselves? So really getting them on board for wanting that and desiring that. But it certainly can be used as a tool. 
I think oftentimes when somebody's struggling with substance abuse, it's a way to get away from their mind. They're using often to get to get away from thinking. And again, this is to connect us with our thinking, right? The opposite. So it can be very uncomfortable at times. But if it can be tolerated, then it certainly should be used. I just, I keep emphasizing that sometimes it may not feel comfortable right away. It's not like mindfulness is the answer that's going to bring peace right away for everyone. It could sometimes make you feel more uncomfortable when you start thinking about maybe how many judgmental thoughts you have about yourself or how many times you're interacting with the world in a way that you really don't feel like is connected to your true self, your higher self. Um, so, but but these are ways that then you have something to work with once you start realizing that that's happening. Like my inner voice is telling me negative things about myself constantly, and that's really impacting how I interact with my coworkers. It's in, it's impacting how I interact in my um, family relationships. And once that happens, then it's a whole another discussion that can be had. So it kind of can open up things in a way, if that makes sense. Just from what you're describing, it seems like your thoughts influence your emotions and vice versa, and then that influences your actions, right? Mm -hmm. So it seems like if you can kind of take a minute and interrupt that process and like take a step back, then you can really help uh, a lot of different issues, you know, anxiety, depression, but even just, you know, general day-to-day -day things too. Definitely day-to-day -day, um, interactions would definitely be helpful. Have you had any experience working with mindfulness and individuals who have like ADHD or ADD? I feel like somebody who may have that diagnosis or struggle with focus or racing thoughts um, and may or may not require any sort of medication or additional treatment may struggle with mindfulness or maybe it's the solution. Yeah, I agree. It can go either way. I think it's just one opportunity to try one potential coping. So it's one opportunity to try something. And if, if individuals are open to it, it could potentially work. But it is true with ADHD, um, racing thoughts or having thoughts that are going on, it can be challenging to kind of slow that down. But it could be an opportunity to recognize when that's happening. What are some physical components or actions that a person can take besides guided imagery and meditation and mindfulness techniques? Is there something that can accompany it such as uh, journaling, diet, exercise, I mean. So, well, I'm glad you brought that up. Um, not necessarily connected to mindfulness, but one of the things that I really do focus on is how an individual is eating and what their sleep habits and exercise habits are like, because oftentimes it can help a lot. That's the foundation for how we're feeling. Um, when I meet with individuals and they tell me they don't eat anything or they had only one Snickers bar and I'm seeing them at 7 o'clock at night, you're not creating a foundation for your body to feel good right there. So right there you're starting not feeling good. You're never going to feel good if you're just eating one Snickers bar and it's 7 o'clock at night. So what can we do to kind of address that first step? And then the sleeping is really important too. And I do notice that when individuals, when their sleep is disrupted, that can have a huge impact. It's so important to try to get in a good sleep cycle, which can also be affected if people work night shifts and things of that nature. So it can be a real challenge. I've been super stressed lately. I have a lot going on between work and I've got an aging ill parent and I'm in the process of having a transition with my, my marriage and there's so much going on and I feel like I can't keep track and I've been I've noticed like little things lately where I've been unable to like I've missed like my daughter's bathing suit and not packing it in her bag today. That's very unlike me. And so there's a lot of things, but I also noticed that I've been uh, more in my head lately. And so maybe mindfulness is 
something that I could utilize to kind of slow everything down and make some pretty big decisions. Because Lord knows, right, when we're impacted and confronted with a lot of decisions or any major decisions, never mind several of them, you can get overwhelmed, you could shut down, you could avoid topics, situations, the task at hand. You could end up going into crisis. <laughs> well, yeah. yeah, and I think that everybody has a different tolerance for that. So what is making you feel overwhelmed may not make me feel overwhelmed. I may be able to tolerate less. And so understanding that threshold is what mindfulness is all about, right, is understanding how I respond in certain situations and what will trigger that response of feeling um, maybe short with individuals, having little patience, feeling frustrated, having an outburst, whatever that would, whatever that would be. And so this is really ab about that. So I think that um, that brings up a really good point that what is overwhelming to me may not be overwhelming to you. And the only way that I can track that is to understand myself. And that's really what mindfulness is about, is to understand your own interactions with yourself, the world, and how you can grow your emotional muscle to be a little bit stronger. And so you're able to um, maybe tolerate things that you once were not able to, how you can continue to take risks in life and, and live a life and feel free to do that. That's really what this is about. Can you talk a little bit more about the emotional muscle? When we're do doing things like trying to control our emotions or having repetitive thoughts and not recognizing that, we're getting ourselves more vulnerable. Uh, it's not the same vulnerability when we can show family members or loved ones we can be vulnerable with. It's a different vulnerability. It means that we're more open to experiences that could potentially bring us down. So things that may be not stressful for us can set us over the edge. For instance, if we're having a great day and everything's perfect and we get a flat tire, we feel very differently about it than if we get a flat tire and it's a Monday morning and we're late for work and we're, you know, right? It's the factors that make us respond in a certain way. Well, if we're able to understand what our own threshold is for feeling stress and we're able to kind of identify that and work with it and have healthier coping, we're going to be able to tolerate and, and strengthen that emotional muscle. Things that used to feel very overwhelming to us were actually able to, to get through. It's similar to uh, like public speaking. The first time you're public speaking, you may be nervous. And then the second time you're a little bit less nervous. And the hope is, is that eventually you're able to conquer that. It's a good example because a lot of people, I think a lot of people are afraid of public speaking. It's like the number one fear. Right? Yeah, I think, I think it is too. And then like death is second or something. So, you know, that's pretty, that, that says something when you're, when you're more afraid of standing up and talking to somebody or in front of people versus dying. You know, as you've been talking about mindfulness, I actually have been thinking in the back of my head about public speaking. Because to me, one of my fears when I publicly speak, and I do a lot of public speaking for Fuller, and, and when I'm getting out there, I've noticed that when I first started publicly speaking, it absolutely, the anxiety was going, my head was rushing, my thoughts were racing. It was difficult. And unfortunately, too, I think in that process, it comes across that way as well. You can tell when somebody's really nervous. They're bouncing from thought to thought or they're not focused or maybe they have too much in their mind. As time has gone on and I've got to better understand my topic and also been able to kind of stop before I present and really try to focus on the, the topic at hand, it's improved. And I will be honest with you. I never even thought about using mindfulness or even taking a few moments and having a quiet meditation beforehand, but now I think I am because all I can imagine is I've got all these ideas and all these things going through and I have so much I want to say. Wouldn't that help to kind of guide and focus on my thoughts? I was thinking about that and 
if I were in a similar situation, I'd probably feel a lot of discomfort. You know, uh, taking a minute and just sitting with myself would make a lot of that kind of come to the surface. Um, do you think mindfulness would help with that or would it just make me more uncomfortable? Well, that's that's why we have to try. You have to try for yourself and see what, what works. But, you know, what, as you were talking, I was even thinking about sports. I think that a lot of individuals that play professional sports may not even realize that they're using mindfulness with their certain kind of styles. They have to hold their hands a certain way before they go to bat or, or walk a certain way. And they, they have these things that they do, these rituals that could be considered mindfulness in some ways. I mean, maybe a little bit obsessive at times, but it's a way to kind of get their mind in the game right? They're trying to focus themselves and say, okay, I'm about to get to bat right now, right? This is my time to do this and this is what I need to do. And so um, it really can be used in a lot of different ways. Could it be used to help someone through discomfort though? So using mindfulness to get through discomfort, the more you're practicing it in times when you're not uncomfortable, it will be easier to use when you are experiencing great stress um, or more more stressful situations. So it just depends if you're using it regularly and you're um, incorporating it into your your daily routines. Then when there is a moment of stress, it will, you'll remember that mindfulness is a tool and be more connected to it. So would it look something like in this public speaking scenario? I'm feeling anxious beforehand. Would using mindfulness in that instance just allow me to acknowledge that I'm feeling anxious and that's okay? Or I don't know, what would it? Yes. So that could be one of the things that you say to yourself. But also remember, anxiety can be like fight or flight or freeze, fight, flight or freeze. But it doesn't mean you have to do any of those things, right? Just because we're having a feeling or we're recognizing a feeling in ourselves does not mean we even have to react to it in that situation. Let's talk a little bit about mindfulness in 2018. How do we practice mindfulness in a day and age where everyone is connected to everything through this little device in the palm of their hands? How do we be mindful? And what do you think the impact of technology has right now on mindfulness and some of the issues that we have around being mindful? Yeah. So one of the techniques when we're trying to talk about coping and to help individuals, one technique could be distraction, which certainly we can definitely use our cell phones or technology to distract ourselves. The The concern comes into play when it's the only technique that's used. So if somebody is saying, when I'm anxious, the only thing that can relax me is my phone, um, when I'm playing a game on my phone, that gets really concerning because you're disconnected from yourself and from others. And that's not being mindful. So I wouldn't say that technology is all bad, but at the same time, it should have its place. And at certain times, if you do need a distraction tool or technique, that could be helpful. But at the same time, you're not connecting with what's really happening or dealing with what's what's going on for you. Austin, any thoughts on technology and mindfulness? Well, I try to use uh, technology to help my mindfulness. Oh, yeah, with, uh, <laughs> yeah. with, uh, I know that there's a lot of uh, YouTube videos, you know, with meditation and things like that. So I use my cell phone, at least at times, to help me (laughs) be mindful. (laughs) I understand. As I had mentioned before, I took out the old cell phone and pulled up some my meditation exercise. And and, and so it can be quite useful. In fact, I, I will be honest, I was on some social media platform. In your feed now, there's a lot of advertising. There's like a new meditation. I don't know if it's an app or something or a mindfulness app. And, and their marketing was great. It was like, take 15 minutes and breathe. And I'm like thinking to myself, that sounds so nice right now. I was tempted to hit it. But what I'm hearing the most of right now is the fact that folks out there really need to think about 
practicing this, making a commitment to to try mindfulness meditation or any of the holistic techniques that we had mentioned, um, coming up with a program, coming up with a plan. If you can work with a professional, amazing, great. If you need a resource, we gave a ton of great resources. And of course, there's your local library. Making a commitment, kind of like going on a diet, right? If you can commit to 30 days doing a detox, can you commit to 30 days of trying mindfulness? One of the people that you've worked with said after kind of integrating mindfulness into their daily life. At times, it can be uncomfortable to first recognize your thoughts, as I've mentioned, but then over time, it becomes part of the practice of who they are, and hopefully it's integrated into their day-to-day routine, and they are not really noticing it as much because it's just kind of a different way that they're being. And that is really the hope, that it's just incorporated into how they live and how they interact with the world and with themselves. You know, I think over the years, we, we all have an opportunity here motivational speaking from all different types, whether professionally or personally. And I feel like one of the consistent habits that I've seen amongst folks who are successful and who come across successful and grounded and focused is diet exercise and some form of meditation or mindfulness. For our listeners, we have a bonus audio file for you guys. It's about a 10-minute meditation and it's a loving kindness meditation. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Sure. So the the loving kindness meditation has been around for some time, and it's just a way to extend love to yourself and then to others, and even to individuals that you may not particularly like. And that's the hope is, is that you are in such an openness and a space where you're able to do that. But um, when you're doing this, you can come up with in your mind your own visualization. One of the ones that I like is I think of a figure eight. So I think that the other person is on the other side of that figure eight and that the love and kindness is being spread to them and then coming back and circling in that infinity loop. And so everybody can kind of come up with their own visualization for that. But the other thing that I like about this meditation is if you're trying to do this and you're struggling with thinking of somebody that you feel loves you unconditionally, or you don't have a lot of relationships with individuals that are not complicated. So if you have a lot of complicated relationships, you can even do this with a pet, somebody that loves that every time you walk in the door, loves to see you. So it doesn't have to be necessarily feeling love and kindness from from an individual. It can be something like your dog or your cat or anybody that you have an uncomplicated relationship with. So I hope that you find it helpful. Great. Diana, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank this you for having me. This has been wonderful. Me. Thank you for allowing us and our listeners to get some more information and understand how impactful it is just to slow down and be present. For folks that are interested in or have questions about our podcast today, um, you can reach us directly through email at mentalillness at wararadio.com. I'm Carrie Ballou, Community Relations Coordinator at Fuller Hospital. Thank you so much for joining us today. I can be reached if you have any questions about mental health issues directly. You can reach me at uh, Fuller Hospital. The direct number there is 833-3-FULLER. If you prefer email, I can be reached at Carrie, C-A-R-R-I-E dot Ballou, B-A-L-L-O-U, at UHSinc.com. Or you can look at our website, www.fullerhospital.com, for more information. And we cannot forget about our drop-in center, the You Are Not Alone Drop-In Center, which is held here in Attleboro at the Murray Unitarian Universalist Church, 505 North Main Street, the last Wednesday of every month. It is a fantastic resource uh, 
from 5.30 to 8 o'clock. It is a collaboration of area agencies who focus on treatment options and support around mental illness, domestic violence, and substance use and abuse. Um, We definitely promote anonymity. We encourage folks who are experiencing some struggles with these areas or have a loved one to please come to our drop-in center. Uh, And if you're on the go and you want to take this podcast with you, you can find it on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, and TuneIn Radio. How did I do, Carrie? You did amazing, Austin. How did I do? You did great. (laughs) All right, folks, thank you again for joining us today. Stay tuned. And in the meantime, be well. The contents of the Exploring Mental Illness podcast provides general information and discussion about medicine, health, and related subjects. The content provided in this podcast, its associated website, and any links material are not intended and should not be construed as medical advice. This podcast should not be used in any legal capacity. No guarantee is given regarding the accuracy of any statements or opinions made on this podcast or its associated website. If the listener or any other person has a medical concern, they should consult an appropriately licensed healthcare professional. The views expressed on this podcast do not represent the views or opinions of Attleboro Access Cable Systems, Arbor Fuller Hospital, or their parents' corporations. The contents of the Exploring Mental Illness podcast and its associated website are copyrighted Attleboro Access Cable Systems. The podcast may be redistributed in accordance with Creative Commons License 4.0.